Hey everybody, it's Mike Schellenberger for Public. I'm very excited to share with you this week a conversation I just had with Alex V. Barnard, professor of sociology at New York University and author of a new book called Conservatorship, Inside California System of Coercion and Care for Mental Illness. This might sound like a very dry or boring academic book, but it's actually extremely well-written and fascinating for anybody who's ever been concerned about so many mentally ill people and people with addiction living homeless on the streets. The book is not specifically about homelessness. It's particularly about this, this specific tool that we use to essentially require people with severe mental illness who are either of danger to themselves or to others or suffering what's called grave disability, unable to meet their basic needs, um, to get them the help that they need medically. And as you can imagine, it's a very controversial thing, particularly in libertarian, libertine places like California. The laws changed after the famous mental hospitals were closed, is really after World War II and all the way through the 60s and 70s. And one of the reasons that we have such a big crisis in California of so many mentally ill people on the street is that it's so hard to get them the care that they need and to require it when that's necessary. So this is a conversation uh, with Alex. He's a fairly young professor. He got his PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley in 2019. I don't agree with him on everything, as you might imagine. It's probably never the case that we do agree with our guests on, on everything, but certainly on his strong concern for this group of deeply suffering people who are also making cities um, unlivable for the residents of these cities. And I think what's interesting about our conversation is he brings, I think, some new dimensions to the way we think about this problem. And we'll get into it by the end of it. But just to give you a little taste of what's to come, uh, Alex argues that we not just aren't conserving enough people, we should be conserving more people, getting them the care they need. But we're also uh, getting people stuck in institutions because we don't have a proper psychiatric and addiction care system. He thinks that the the really desperately sick people on the streets don't exist in places like Western Europe because they do have a better care system and the addiction has gotten to the point where people are so wrecked that really more people need to be conserved here than they do in other Western countries because their illnesses are so much worse. And then he also argues that if we had a better care system, it wouldn't be so hard to persuade um, mentally ill people, including people uh, with, you know, lapsing in between in and out of psychosis or mania, it wouldn't be so hard to persuade them to get the care they need if we had a proper care system. So it's a wonderful conversation. You can see um, it doesn't follow any sort of obvious uh, left-right differences. Uh, traditionally, it's been uh, kind of more conservative to want to conserve more people, um, but uh, it's also been uh, more liberal to want expanded care. And when you're talking about some sort of a, of a new deal where you have both expanded mandatory care for people, but also better care, I think we're looking at something that has um, real uh, political potential and, and power and resonance that crosses ideological lines. So enjoy the conversation. Alex Barnard, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. You are the author of this um, excellent new book. I have uh, just finished reading Conservatorship Inside California System of Coercion and Care for Mental Illness. 
uh, a lot to talk about, but why don't we just start by um, you telling me, I, I know why I think this book is important, but maybe we can start by you explaining why you think this topic was so important that you dedicated so much of your life to. Sure. Well, uh, this book really started in 2018. I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and I heard about an, is an initiative in San Francisco uh, to expand the use of conservatorship, which is a, a legal tool by which a third party, uh, often a, a, an agent of county government, uh, gets rights over a person with disabilities, which, which allows them to order that person into a locked facility or to consent to medication on their behalf. And uh, this state senator, Scott Weiner, was proposing to expand conservatorship uh, to deal or to, to respond to people with mental illness and substance use disorders uh, who are homeless, um, and particularly a, a really small subset of that population who are homeless and, and perceived as very disruptive and using really large amounts of city services. And at, at that moment, I said, oh, conservatorship, I've barely heard about that. And as an academic, I, I looked around, I looked on Google Scholar and was sort of struck that um, both at the level of state government, but also in academia, there was almost nothing about how this conservatorship system that already existed was functioning. We're talking about expanding the use of a legal tool, but we actually don't know anything about the people who are already subject to it, what their outcomes are, what it's accomplishing. And so, you know, this book really emerged from my curiosity of, you know, what is this system that's supposed to be serving some of the most vulnerable and disproportionately unhoused people in California? And why is it so obviously failing in the sense of, as, as anyone living in the Bay Area can see, there are people who are living with really severe substance use and mental illness challenges, and uh, they're on the street and they're not doing well. And I think a lot of people ask, okay, why isn't there some intervention happening? And the book is intended in some ways to challenge two of the popular narratives about that story. So one is, well, they're not, those people are on the street, they're not being served because there just isn't enough money for services out there. I think that we can always use more money for services. We can always use more housing. But there's a little bit more complex part of the story of, you know, what kind of services and what, what do you do when somebody doesn't accept the services that are being offered? So that's one narrative that I didn't find totally satisfying. And the other narrative is this idea that, well, we used to have these institutions, these locked mental health institutions in the 60s, then civil rights lawyers, you know, came in and we closed all those institutions and it's been impossible to force anyone to do anything. And that's not true, there are still, you know, over 100,000 instances per year in California where somebody is, you know, involuntarily transported to a hospital for a mental health evaluation, and there are thousands of people placed into conservatorship. And so I think we'll get into the details. But in the end, you know, the book was, is attempting to portray a system of conservatorship in California that manages to subject a lot of people to often short term, ineffective, pointless coercion, and yet very rarely fails to get those individuals on any track that would provide them ongoing stability and recovery. Um, I mean, you just gave a really interesting, there's a sort of an intellectual curiosity here, but I assume that there must be something as well where your heartstrings were tugged around the situation of people who are mentally ill living on the street. I know for me, it's a, um, something that I continue to get very emotional about um, encountering people that appear to be suffering either from schizophrenia or severe bipolar or some serious mental illness living on the street. I know also you did some work in France, which I think was sort of a touchstone for you. Um, and you saw, a, I think we would all agree, a better functioning uh, mental health program. Was that, um, so can you speak both to sort of, you know, just the, 
non-rational, non-intellectual motivations, because I'm sure you're very concerned about those people. And also, um, you know, when when was your experience in France? Was that before or after you took on the question of, of why, um, you know, what is going on with conservatorship in California? Sure. So my, my non-rational reasons for being interested in this go even deeper. I have a brother who lives with severe mental illness and, and serious developmental disabilities. And there have been moments when he's in crisis where, you know, my parents and myself, we look at each other and we sort of ask, oh my God, like what would happen if he didn't have a family? What would happen if he didn't have resources? What would happen if we didn't know how to navigate these extremely complex medical and legal bureaucracies? And the answer is what would happen is what you what I was seeing on the streets in, in the Bay, right, is people who are effectively um, being abandoned. So, you know, that's, you know, one part of where I'm coming at this from. I think I, I did this research in 2015, 2016, looking at the public mental health system in France. And I did that before I looked at the California system, which in some ways is the opposite of what you usually do. You know, usually as a social scientist, you study your own place and then you go abroad to see how it's different. And I was really glad I went to France first because it meant that when I came back to the U.S., a lot of things that I took for granted actually struck me as very, very weird. Uh, the fact that the public safety net in California is so incredibly privatized in a way that allows these contracted for-profit and non-profit providers to essentially decide who they serve would be totally bizarre to a French person who's accustomed to the idea that, well, we have public services, they're supposed to serve ev everyone, and especially they should serve the people who are living with the most serious conditions, which is often the opposite in, in California. I think the other piece that you know, spending time in France sharpened for me is that there are some profound trade-offs here. That the, the French system is much more comfortable with being both protective and paternalistic uh, to people. That, you know, a lot of the folks that, you know, I, when I asked that question of, okay, what would that person on the street I see here, where would they be in France? I, mean, I think in some cases, like, they would be in a hospital and they would be there for a while. And that's, that's a trade-off. I think in the U.S., uh, we have a much stronger discourse of civil rights. And that discourse is really important. It, it blocks a lot of abuses, but it also can become a rhetoric that provides cover for abandoning people, essentially, that says, you know, one of the things that I encountered through this research was this narrative of the successfully homeless person or homeless by choice or managing the homeless lifestyle of, oh, we don't need to intervene in that individual's life because they're successfully managing the homeless lifestyle, which means they're kind of staying out of jail, staying out of hospitals. Uh, and I don't necessarily think the French would find that completely acceptable, actually, to, to say, well, homelessness is just a, a lifestyle choice. Well, I want to get into why the system is the way it is a little bit more. But first, let's get into how bad the system is and how the system fails. I think it's one of the things I think is so um, uh, ingenious about your book, and I think shows a lot of care in the way it was organized, is that you have these... Um, well, the book is divided into three parts, which is really um, the continuum of care or continuum of non-care um, for people. That's part one. And then you have kind of care and coercion, part two. And then part three is kind of what you want to have happen. So it's a well-structured book. But that first part one, I thought was really well done. What you've done is you've actually divided this continuum of care. That's the, that's the jargon that's used for how we attempt to care or don't care for people suffering from mental illness. I don't know why it's doing that. <laughs> um, um, 
And there's six parts. You go through outpatient care, crisis, emergency rooms, inpatient, public guardians, courts. This is um, a, such a, I think it's a, a, it's the complexity has been part of the challenge of, pe- of helping people understand what goes wrong in the system. But I wonder if you want to just kind of walk us through that first part of kind of, because I think with the language we hear in the media, and I think we all use is sort of falling through the cracks and people go into ER and then they're discharged after 72 hours or less. I mean, can you sort of give us a picture uh, a kind of a, you know, for ordinary, for folks that are not experts in this, um, of kind of how the system fails um, and how it fails in so many different places? Yeah, so the, the, the first part of the book, you know, looks at each p- link in the chain towards somebody being conserved. So maybe I'll just briefly kind of overview, you know, most people who are conserved, they have been, they have failed in, or we might say have been failed by voluntary outpatient services. And as a result, they're in some kind of a crisis. Uh, When they're in crisis, they could be subject to something called a 5150, uh, kind of an involuntary psychiatric hold in which a peace officer, police officer, or clinician in the community says, uh, I think this person is a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or gravely disabled, which means they're not able to meet their need for food, clothing, or shelter as a result of mental disorder, and I think they need an evaluation. So they take them to an emergency room. Emergency room conducts its own evaluation and then decides whether to admit that person to the hospital. In the hospital, the person has to stay at least 17 days, during which time they're going to have a judicial review. And then if they still are are deemed gravely disabled at the end of 17 days, the inpatient psychiatrist can make an application for a conservatorship. That goes to a county agency called the Public Guardian, Uh, which is an agency that has an incredible amount of power over its wards and yet is kind of totally invisible in our discussion of county government and the kind of services it provides. The public guardian does an investigation, and if they decide to pursue a conservatorship, that's then ruled upon by a a court. And there's a whole procedure. A person has a right to a trial by jury. They have to be found gravely disabled beyond a reasonable doubt. And then Uh, And then the judge will make some sort of determination as to what level of care, usually a locked facility, the person should be placed in. So two points to make about this. I mean, one is that at every step in that chain, actors in this mental health system look like they have a lot of power over people with mental illness, that a cop can put you on a 5150, handcuff you and put you in a car. You know, a a doctor can keep you in a hospital, in a locked hospital that you don't want to be there. And yet one of the arguments in the book is that None of those actors, those police, ER clinicians, public guardians, have very much authority over the other people in the system. And as a result, the real power that most of those actors have is to push people out of the system. That if you're an ER doctor, you can't actually make sure that somebody gets conserved. That's way further down the line from you. But what you can do is you can kick somebody out of your ER and say, this person doesn't meet conservatorship criteria. This is not our problem. And, and you see that at, at sort of every step that police, you know, on one hand, we say, wow, police, they can, they're not even mental health clinicians, and they can say this person is mentally ill, and I'm going to put them in handcuffs and take them to an ER. But like, actually, when you talk to the police, mostly they feel that what they do is pretty futile, uh, because they see that same person, you know, I, I've, I've talked to officers who talked about placing a 5150 on somebody in the parking lot of a hospital because they had just been discharged and they wanted to send that person back in. So it's like we're at that level of futility in terms of some of these interventions, even though they could be perceived as you know very traumatic and harmful by the person subject to them. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that actually the very end of this continuum 
is the tail that wags the dog, which is everyone in this continuum, what they're making decisions based on is partly based on the question of, are there resources at the end of this? Is this person actually going to get a bed or are they just going to be stuck in a hospital waiting to go where they're supposed to go to a residential treatment program or to, you know, some sort of intensive therapeutic kind of treatment provider. And almost all of those beds are in, in private entities that again, they're, they're very few in number and they get to choose who they're going to take. And so a lot of the people kind of are pulled off of this continuum very early on, not because anyone thinks they don't meet these legal criteria, but because they just don't think they're going to wind up where they're supposed to go at the end. And as one sort of one hospital doctor told me, a doctor working at a county hospital, she said, look, being in this, some people, you know, we think they should be conserved, but you know, being stuck in this hospital versus being out on the street, maybe it's just more traumatic to be in this hospital. So we're just going to let them go on the street, even though I think they need conservatorship. And those are the kind of decisions that are happening all through the system. And, and, and so now what is, what do, what do they do in France? How is it different in France? I think there's two really core differences. I mean, one is that it's a public system and it's an integrated system that the outpatient treatment clinics and the hospitals are part of a single unit called a sector. And as a result, it's a much harder to sort of pass responsibility onto someone else. The country is divided into these sectors of 60,000 people. And if somebody resides in that sector, you know, and you're a public psychiatrist working there, like that person is your responsibility. And they are your responsibility, whether they're in outpatient treatment or in the they're in the hospital. They're they're still your patient, and so there isn't these kind of opportunities to to shuffle people around in the same way. And then it's just a much more robust system. There's about three times as many psychiatric beds in in France relative to the population as there are in the U.S. And again, that that has its downsides. That can mean that people are stuck in hospitals a lot longer than they. They need to be, but there's there's much less of a sense of this incredibly constant, almost war zone-like triaging of resources that you see on the ground in a place like San Francisco. So, the, and that's very, the country I'm more familiar with is the Netherlands, but what they always emphasize when they, you know, they come here, it's always great to, you know, one of my, the, the characters in San Francisco is a, is a, is a, is a, is a Dutch nurse and he always just says, we have a caseworker and they stick with the person. It sounds like in France, it's more of the psychiatrist, but you belong to somebody like you aren't passed off to somebody ever. Um, you know, is that the is that the main? I mean, and, and then I guess my follow up question to that is we, we I mean, if you go back and read the literature on homelessness and mental illness going back to like the 80s they talk about the need for continuum of care and case management and all of this. So. What is it that, you know, why can't, why can't we seem to create the interconnective uh, uh, responsibility chains of authority? What is it about? Because it seems like in Dutch, if you look at Holland and France, they actually are both doing the same thing. They might have different people doing it. Maybe it's a psychiatrist in France. Maybe it's a caseworker in, in Netherlands. Is that the case? First of all, I'm just checking if that's, if that's what you're saying. And then also, why can't we seem to create that here? Yeah, and I, I, I think that is the core difference, although I'll modify it a little bit in the sense that, you know, I don't think what people on the streets of San Francisco need is another caseworker, right? I, I want to talk to somebody in the public guardian's office there who joked, you know, we have people who have seven social workers and they're still on the street. 
And I think right. it's it's that they don't necessarily need another professional. They need somebody with some actual authority to access resources on their behalf. And I think that's what's different about a psychiatrist in France versus an outpatient psychiatrist here is that the outpatient psychiatrist I talked to, they said, yeah, so I used to try and hospitalize people and I'd call the ER, but now I've just given up. They don't want to talk to me and they're going to do what they do. And so again, it's not necessarily a lack of professionals, but it's those professionals don't have the authority to make something happen elsewhere in the system. And, and, and again, I think that's tied to the fact that we don't really have a public mental health system. We have a lot of public money running through programs like Medicaid and Medi-Cal and county government, but it's, it's being dispersed among, you know, a huge number of very fragmented providers that often aren't really held to that kind of public responsibility of, you know, you're really obligated to serve everyone in this population, regardless of how challenging, unpleasant, resistant you might find them. So that's, and I want to add, I think one other comment about the comparison between France or really anywhere in Europe and California, I, I opened by saying, you know, I saw these people and I think in France, they would be in a hospital, some of these individuals on the street. But one of the conclusions I came to at the end of writing my book is that actually, I think some of these people just don't exist in France and Western Europe, that there's a particular you know, the degree of chronicity of homelessness, the extent to which people have been abandoned for very long periods of time, who may have been subjected to, th you know, to, you know, mass incarceration, who haven't had access to public housing, who haven't had health insurance, and, you know, add in substances like fentanyl and methamphetamine, which really have not hit Europe to the same extent. You know, the dilemmas that these cases pose are just so much more acute in California because the social conditions are so much, so unfathomably worse in a lot of ways that these questions around forced treatment, they just are a lot trickier because again, we, we allow people to be in a state that I think almost doesn't exist in, in Western Europe. Yeah, I want to get more into that. But just to finish on the structural difference, I mean, the interesting thing from one of my interesting findings was, you know, the Dutch have a healthcare system that's also mostly private insurers. Now, I think they do have some centralized authority, but just to really put a fine point on it for our listeners. Um, and and I should and I think you probably know I agree with you on this, this central point. And, and I, it's not because I even independently came to it, it was actually everywhere in the literature was this problem of, 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 of no central continuing responsibility and authority for a single entity. One way you solve it, obviously, is in France, where you have a single government agency. Apparently, the Dutch are able to solve it through some other authority. But basically, they, after decades of this problem in California, and I think in other parts of the United States, we still have not figured out how to give somebody authority over somebody going across organizations or going across institutions, whether it's, um, you know, the hospital or the courts or the jails, you know, or the ER or the psych wards. Um, we can't figure out how to do that. Um, and so I guess I, I guess I'll skip to the end, which is sort of what do you do about this um, at a structural level? Um, you know, obviously it's it sort of sounds like what you're saying is you need to have a single payer uh, healthcare system. Is is that what you're recommending, or what, where do you what do you want to see change in California to give to create that authority so that we that people don't keep getting uh, slip, slipping through the cracks? 
Well, I'm certainly a fan of a single payer healthcare system, but you're right that Europe actually has many models of universal healthcare and probably all of them would work better than our own. I mean, it's true that Netherlands has Netherlands has private health insurance companies, but they actually don't function like private health insurance in the US. They essentially can't turn anyone down or or not provide care. You know, France has actually a large system of private hospitals. They just have a special category for psychiatric hospitals called private hospital functioning as a public hospital. And it's exactly like it sounds that it's, you know, you can be private, but you have to take the same patient population as if you were public. So, uh, so you're, you're right that, you know, we don't have to imagine, you know, there's not just one model that would work a lot better than, than California. But I mean, one of the, the things that I settled on in my, in my book is that, you know, there there does need to be a much more robust role for for government uh, in 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 caring for this population. You know, precisely because it's so easy for everyone to to say no to serving them, but also because I think the issues around involuntary treatment are so tricky, and it's been easy for state government to say, "Look, you on the ground, work it out." Like the judges and the police and the clinicians, you just figure it out. Like uh, you know, figure out how to operationalize these criteria as you want try and get people where they need to go. Um, and, and that's a lot easier than, you know, taking on the question of like, okay, what is this system actually supposed to do? What are the metrics we want it to, to have? And how are we going to evaluate whether it's working? Uh, what are the services we need to mandate counties to, to provide in order to serve this population? I, I think that it's, you know, I talk about the book as I, I call it abdicated authority that, uh, it's it's if you look through the historical record, it's just sort of always been easier for uh, the state to to kick this problem down a level uh, to to throw it to the courts rather than take on more directly the the question of how do we organize the mental health system and what is the right role for coercion in it. And so in the in the and so is your view then that so there's a problem in the lack of um, of centralization. And, and uh, of authority. Um, is there also a problem of having the counties be in charge rather than the state? Yeah, I mean, it's you talk about centralization of authority, it's almost there is no authority, right? There is actually no one. It's not It's not just that the authority is, is dispersed. It's that no one is actually exercising authority over the system. No one actually has the power to make sure somebody who's conserved gets the place they need to go versus being left in an acute hospital where they shouldn't be. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the county system in a perfect world, you'd have 58 counties that are adapting their system to local conditions and, you know, therefore would be sort of the wonders of, of federalism. I think in practice, you know, this is an issue that is too important and too delicate to allow it to to vary across counties in the way that it does. One of the things I discovered in my research is counties interpret the rules around conservatorship totally differently. Some counties say, oh yeah, if you're conserved, we can force you to take medication. Other counties say, oh no, no, that's not, that's not part of our powers. Some counties say, if you can figure out how to pitch a tent, that means you're meeting your need for shelter, you can't be conserved. Whereas other counties might have a somewhat higher bar for what meeting your need for shelter or clothing or, or food means. And as a result, people's fundamental civil liberties vary across county lines in a way that I just think is ethically, is just fundamentally uh, indefensible. And it's also a state where, you know, there are a lot of the counties are very, very small, and they simply can't organize on their own the level of kind of specialized services. You know, a county with 
you know, Trinity County with 10,000 people, they're just not going to be able to, to stand up the level of intensive residential services or first episode psychotic break interventions. You know, those populations are too small and that county just doesn't have the resources. So there, there's definitely a, a role for a more kind of a, a higher power, if you will, you know, for state government in this. I mean, do you think that you need a, a single state agency to be in charge? Well, California had a single state agency until 2012, the Department of Mental Health. And by all accounts, it was really dysfunctional and it was overly focused on the state hospital system, the relic of the 1960s, and not very engaged in the community care system. So, you know, the, the, the arguments for why that agency was closed, I, I understand. I mean, I've heard them. But, but I do think mental health has now been dissolved into this, you know, $100 billion Department of Healthcare Services. And it just hasn't had a lot of visibility until recently. And I think that's particularly a problem because there are these things that are very unique about mental health that we don't see in other forms of healthcare, particularly the role of involuntary treatment. And, and the state, has, there, there simply has been no one even, you know, reliably counting the number of people under gone conservatorship, a hundred billion dollar agency that can't tell you how many people are conserved in the state. And I think, you know, that does speak uh, again, like I'm not a, I don't know exactly the ins and outs of the best way to organize state government, but certainly somebody who has dedicated responsibility for steering this, this system, you know, some entity that's, that seems pretty essential. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.